This morning, I want to share with you out of 1 Peter chapter 3 about how to treat others. And Peter has brought us to this point in the book. And uh, the Bible, Jesus said, as he was asked the question, what are the greatest commandments in the Bible? What are the greatest commandments in the law? And he said two things. One, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said the second one is like the first and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, well, how do I do that? I mean, that's easier said than done, right? I mean, after all, we look at ourselves and we, we always give ourselves more grace than we give the other guy. We always tend to forgive others uh, or forgive ourselves quicker than we're going to forgive others. We want other people to listen to us, but we're not as apt maybe to listen to them. Easier said than done. And as we look at how to treat people, Peter has brought us to this point. It begins really all the way back to chapter 2, if we look at that, and verse 5, where the Bible says, you are like living stones. You're alive in Christ. Jesus Christ lives in your heart now, and that should be a, a life change. You should look at things from a different perspective. Your wisdom is different. Your, your outlook on life, your attitude changes because of the Holy Spirit living within you. Then he says this in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. And so the Bible says that we've changed and we become a part of a whole new community. Then he tells us what change this ought to take place in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, conduct yourselves among the Gentiles or those who are not really Christians, those who are unbelievers, do it in such a way that they're gonna see your good deeds because persecution is coming upon this church as Peter is writing it. In fact, so bad, Nero was the emperor coming into power at that time, would not only persecute Christians, but he would do so by dipping them in hot wax and lighting them to light his gardens at night. A beast, really, at heart. Someone who had no compassion upon anyone. And the, the Christians that Peter was writing to were going through that even right then. But he said, look, you don't treat them with revenge. This is how you ought to treat them. And beginning in verse, uh, really in verse 19, 13 of chapter 2, he says, first of all, you, you are subject to them. You are to get into the proper rank. You are to be, have a submissive, humble heart to those who are over you, even during the persecution times. He even talks about that in the family, as Tim Dix brought to you, as I gave him the, the best passage to preach in the book of 1 Peter last week, just, just saying. No, but it was a great, great sermon that he did. And he talked about even the submission in the home. Now he says in verse 8, finally. Well, what's he, what's he saying finally for? Well, it's not, it's, not like, it's not the rest of the book. It's really not a conclusion to the book. It's a conclusion to this argument. It's not like when, the, when I get up and say in conclusion and uh, you know, your wife turns to you and says, what does he mean by that? And you say, absolutely nothing. You know? And so it's not that. It, it's something different here as he's bringing this argument to a final argument. So how do we treat others? After all, we think the Declaration of Independence, and it does say this, Thomas Jefferson uh, was quoted in this by saying, we have certain rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
And so we think to ourselves, it is my inalienable right to be happy. And in trying to be happy, if somebody else gets in my way of that happiness, then all of a sudden I need to strike back. I need to do something to defend myself. I need to do something different because they, they are interfering with my happiness. Now, my question is, how do we really become happy? What does the Bible really present us as happiness in life? Is it serving ourselves or serving other people? How do we see this in the light of everything? Well, I, I want, want to break down this passage in three points. What we, what we are to do, how we are to do it, and why should we do it? What is the goal to all this? What is the purpose in living the way Peter is telling us to live and treating people? Well, first of all, I want us to see what we are to do. Look in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you. Now, what I mean by, by all of you is all of you Christians. He doesn't mean everybody in the world. Remember who he's writing this letter to. He's writing this to the Christians of that day. Therefore, he's writing that letter to us as Christians today. He says, all of you as a church, I'm speaking to you as the body of Christ. I don't expect those outside the body of Christ to act in this way. Be nice if they did, but they just, they really won't. But this is how I am exhorting you to live. He says, first of all, have unity of mind. That unity does not mean conformity. It doesn't mean to have one opinion about everything. It, everybody here has a different fingerprint. All of us have a different palate. We have different taste buds. We taste things and have a different opinion on how things taste. Then we have different talents, different gifts, different temperaments. In fact, if all of us in the church were the same, only one opinion, then we would have problems and then we had no solution because everybody just had the same solution. Nobody would be looking behind the scenes and finding out what's really going on. Now, let me say this. In the light of what's going on this past week, I did have to, uh, I'll just tell you, I, I had to kind of rethink, re-pray through, and rewrite some of this message uh, about five minutes ago. Well, not really, but it's going to sound like it, okay, just to let you know. And uh, really, as, we're, as we come here, it says, the unity of mind. Again, speaking to the church about coming together. And as we look at this, we realize that the reason he says all of you, the Christian church, is because we cannot expect the world to think like we think. But let me ask you something. Are we so often getting our opinions from the world around us? Now, let me tell you how dangerous that is. First of all, the world around us does not have the spirit of God living within them. And so they look at things from a different perspective. They look at things of the now. And that's what secular means. It just simply means you look at life as now. And so how does this affect uh, fairness now? How, how does what's going on in our world today, what's happened to George Floyd, what's happened with the, the protests, what's happening even with the pandemic, all of these things, how, how do they relate to the now? while the Christian realizes that there are problems in the now that we need to solve, but we have to do that in the light of eternity. There's something beyond us. This world is not fair. This world is unfair. This world is unjust. 
we have men really so involved in this that everything's ever, always going to look at some kind of injustice in the world. That's why we look to heaven, to God, for the final justice. Then this world is, really has an insatiable appetite for power. It really does. That's why even uh, pastors are suspected on occasion. Everybody wants the same thing. We want power and control over somebody else's life. And we see this in the world. We saw this with Hitler. Hitler started off by saying, well, the Germans are, are the most important people in the world. We need to, to raise them up. And, and he, was, he had other things in mind. Communism started out with the Bolshevik rev Revolution, where the workers basically were revolting against those that were in power so they could have their freedoms only to get under a worse power. And we, we see communism enslaving uh, really billions of people over the centuries. We see it in even our political parties today. We wonder, do our, do our representatives, our representatives, our senators, and people even in our state sometimes, are they really concerned about us? Are they, are, are they more worried about staying in power? Are they more worried about getting voted back in? Do they love the country or do they love themselves and the power that, they bring, that brings them? The world has a different wisdom. James chapter three talks about this when he says, the wisdom of this world is, is secular, it's worldly, and even says this, it says it's demonic. That's what it says. You know, how many of you have seen the, the movie, The Wonder Woman? Anybody here? What about you at home? Raise your hand. I can't see your hand. No, really, I can't see it, you know. But many of you have seen that movie where this, uh, this guy that's supposed to be a, a god, he kind of walks along and just whispers in people's minds on what to do. Well, that's kind of really what, what Satan does. The Bible says this in the same book that we're preaching on. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, sober be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter mentions spiritual warfare three times in this book. Paul talks about it. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, next week. But with that... We have to be careful not to think just in community. I'm not talking about community of the church. I'm talking about the community of the world. We have to be careful uh, in our thoughts. Now, we can say this is generational, and it kind of is in a way, but all of us fool ourselves sometimes by thinking we're such individualists. I mean, here we are in America. Man, I, I, I make up my own mind. I've got my own thing. But we, we don't. We, we copy those around us. You know, no man's an island. And uh, we, we are products sometimes of what go, goes on around us. But sometimes in, a, in a, this generation coming along, the younger we are, the more we're taught to be in community. And what has happened there is sometimes if we're in community, we're taking not only the community thoughts of the church, but we're taking the community thoughts of the world as well. And so we look at this and we find ourselves um, very limited because what we do, we take on the emotions. We take on everything of the world and, and they, take, they take values and things like, if I can say this, like germs off the street. It's really a wisdom that is of themselves as they see the world. And the Bible tells us, you got to go by the Bible if Jesus is your Lord. The Bible tells us it's a demonic wisdom. And so he says to be unified together so we can come up with not only God's thoughts together as one, but also the solutions as well. Now, let me say this. I, I, 
I realized that what, and I said this in a, in a, in a post on uh, Facebook, uh, social media, is that what happened to George Floyd and his death was uh, the most uh, atrocious thing I think I've ever witnessed on TV, period. I mean, maybe, maybe something that's fictitious, but not, nothing like that was real. Nothing, no, nothing real to it. And so now we find the protest involved. And that, that's close to me because my daughter lives in Buckhead and she can look outside of her window and see everything, all the restaurants, nice restaurants. She lives across from the mall there at Lenox. She can see the mall uh, busted up. She can see the buildings in front of her burned down. And hers is the next building. It's the only one left on that block. And so she's seen it firsthand. Some of you maybe have seen it firsthand. And now, is this a way to respond? Well, we understand that sometimes the world's going to respond that way, or they're going to say, well, all policemen are bad. Well, let me sh share this with you. Uh, pastors have taken it on the chin as well. You have priests that have been caught doing uh, horrible stuff. Does that mean that we get rid of all the priests? Or pastors have been called doing horrible stuff. You had a big thing coming out of Texas just the last uh, just a few years ago about the background of all this th that's been going on the last several years. But that's only a few. That's only a few. You don't, you can't throw everything out. That is not a biblical way of thinking of things. It's putting everybody in the same thing. Now, I know that we all want, we, we all seek fairness and justice in this world. And sometimes um, we seek it so strongly that we get emotional about it, and sometimes, as I've been told by this the younger generation, I've been told by them, we like to, to look at something of social justice and jump on that bandwagon. But what, whose bandwagon? You've got to ask yourself, whose bandwagon are you jumping on? Is this something that God's a part of, or is this something the world's a part of? Now, I know what you're thinking. You just want justice. You want, you, you want fairness. But let me say this. Let me say this. I believe, and this is my belief, that God has placed a longing in everyone's heart for heaven. We have that longing. We think about it. A better day. Justice and fairness. The difference in the Christian is we realize that that, that fairness, that heaven, that utopia on earth is not going to happen here. We can search for it. We can push for it. And, and I believe in, in doing things to make things more fair with everybody and justice, but we're never going to reach that utopia. We, we long for something within us that God calls us, and he uses that to call us to salvation. It's not going to happen here. So what do we do? We have to come together for some solutions. Dwight Bain, who's a friend of mine, he's a counselor, very prominent counselor here in, um, in Orlando. And I was talking to him a couple of years ago over breakfast, and he says he looked at himself as more of a coach instead of a counselor. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, a counselor will look into the past and keep looking into the past and delve into the past, and it's the parents, and it's the brother and the sister, and it's the job, and it was the bullying at school, and, and you know, he, you, know he, you can go on. I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth now, but all this stuff in the past... He said, what I do, I look at the past, I gain what, what, what is the problem, and then I work the rest of the time on the solution. There's problems, and sometimes we don't know what those problems are. I'm coming to the point in my life, and I, I can tell you, I, I, was, uh, I was down this week. I, I, was, um, I was really down. And, 
very, I, I was almost like, what, what do I do now? I mean, I, I feel like almost, I mean, not giving up on things, but still, you feel that way sometimes because the things that you believed, all of a sudden you're told, you, no, those things are wrong. Well, like what? Well, Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream. He said, I, I dream, and I'm paraphrasing this, that there's gonna be a time that my four children can be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the character of their life. And I, I grabbed onto that. I said, that's right. You know, we ought to be, and everybody's saying for my generation and anybody probably over 40 still, that you ought to be kind of colorblind to all this thing. It's not, here's, here's a, a black man, here's Joe. And people look at me, oh, that's not a white man, that's Dwayne or Pastor Mercer. We, we know, know people by name and not, not judge them or even think of them by, by color. And now they're saying, no, no, no. We, we want you to recognize the difference in the races. Where'd that come from? I mean, I feel like if I can uh, put marriage in this a little bit, about the old couple that was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary and they went out to dinner. And the man carefully got the loaf of bread, probably something like you'd find at uh, Outback or something like that. Or um, what's the other steak place? Longhorn, Longhorn. Um, and you slice the bread. And he would always he'd put a little butter on it and give her the end piece. And she got so mad. And she said, for 50 years, you've given me the end piece, the leftovers, all these years. And he looked so surprised. And he said, I've been giving you the end piece because it's my favorite piece. Total misunderstanding. Is that what we're, we're, we're saying? Are, are we even listening to one another? Are we just assuming that we know the problems? How are we going to know the solutions unless we listen to one another and discover what the problems really are? Jesus would have us to do that. The Bible tells us not only to have unity, but he talks about a sympathy. Now, you can't, ex here's, here's part of the problem. You're expecting me. I, I had someone to tell me one time when I, I agreed with him on something. And he said, yeah, but you don't agree strongly enough. And I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, you ought to hate that guy. And I said, well, I don't hate anybody. Well, you ought to hate him. You're not emotional enough about it. You don't, and what he's saying is, even though you may think sort of like I think on some things, you don't feel strong. You, you don't feel what I feel. Well, I can't expect, you can't expect me to, way, to feel the way you do about things. I don't have the background that you have. I'm different than you are, and everybody else is different, but I can understand your feelings. I can feel sympathy means to pity. In the original Greek, it means to empathize. I'm trying to put myself in your place, and it's hard to do, but let me listen to you and understand your feelings of what's going on, and we can apply this in so many areas of our life, including forgiveness of just a spouse or forgiveness of someone else. An empathy is sympathy. Listen, here's something you ought to think about in your marriage life and in your life with, uh, with any loved one that you have in your life. Mature love will be known when you're more grieved about the things you've said to your loved one than you are grieved about what the things that they've said to you. Listening to other people, feeling for other people. It says brotherly love. And this word is where we get our word Philadelphia from. And it says in the Bible in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3 also, if you hate your brother, the love of Christ is not in you. You can't do that. And whether you're saying you, you hate a certain race or you hate the way a certain 
race is responding or you hate the president or the past president, if hate really is in your heart, then it shows you, and John's trying to tell us in that book, that you need to, to grapple with your own repentance. You need to grapple with your own salvation. You need to ask yourself the question, am I really ready for heaven? If I were to die right now, do I know I'd go to heaven? Because you're having an evidence in your life that would say contrary to that. He says, a brotherly love, a fellowship. Now let me apply this in a little different way. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's Proverbs 27. And it says in the first church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So again, I'm going to apply this in a little different way because I've just got to say this, and a praise to God. Even though we've experienced a pandemic in our um, COVID-19, we've been isolated in our homes except for going to the grocery store and Home Depot. And Sam's. But we've been isolated. You know what I'm saying. I praise God. I praise God for the ability to have a service like this online and people can watch it at home. Don't you? And we've had more people really online and watching online per week. And we've got a way, an algorithm to count them. And, uh, you know, it's not the 10,000 that you, or several thousand that everybody says it's on Facebook. In fact, we have more people watching probably on television and on our online ministry than we do Facebook. But we've had more people watch online than we've had, we used to have in the auditorium by itself. But I also praise God for Zoom. You know, it used to be you had to Skype. Remember those days? And then there was the mere FaceTime. But now we can Zoom it. You know, we can get all these people uh, in our Sunday school, or small group classes, man, they're, they're plastered up there. I've had meetings like that. Man, you've got so many people that are meeting with you for Zoom. And if you don't, you get tired of looking at their picture, you just go like that, and you get a whole new set of pictures, you know? Whole new set of class. Man, what a deal. What a deal. And, um, you know, you can sit there sipping on your coffee as you're going through all this and, and you don't have to participate if you don't want, I mean, or, or talk the whole time if you want. I mean, who's going to interrupt you, right? But listen, a lot of people say, well, you know, I just, I think I just rather just zoom, zoom it than show up. Well, let me share this with you. And a lot of you uh, don't experience this, but I have had um, three grandchildren, Pam and I, three grandchildren um, in England for the last almost 11 years. And um, my, uh, my oldest grandchild was actually a small baby when they went to Scotland and before they moved to England. And they've been going to school. And then after that, teaching and doing a little pastoring. This past week, they moved to Boston. Isn't that great? And so I praise God for that. But here's, here's what I noticed. In fact, it's been almost a year since we've seen them in person because of the COVID-19 thing because we were going to go in the spring. But um, I noticed that when we visited them, the first month after we visited them, because we'd play with them, you know, have a great time with them, and they would, they would get on uh, face, FaceTime, and they would just lo- be locked right in there, all gathered up on the couch telling us about their week, about a month. Second month, they would just sort of pass by the camera. You know what I'm saying? Say hello, and, and, and oh, come and tell 
Nana and Papa goodbye, and oh, we love you, and blow kisses and all that, but they've been doing something else. And the, then after about the third month, it was just sort of, hey, uh, who are you? I mean, almost, you know, that kind of thing. The reason why we were able to, not Zoom, but FaceTime with them so effectively for that first month is because of a relationship we already had with them. Now, the reason you're able to Zoom so effectively with those in your class is because of the relationship you already have with them, but the longer you go in not meeting with them, the poorer that relationship's gonna get. And it may be that one day you really don't, aren't motivated to even Zoom anymore. So I wanna encourage you to come back as soon as you can. Well, notice it says here, and I need to move on. It says a tender heart. That means um, a heart of compassion toward those around you. This is past week. We had um, a fire here in Oviedo and uh, an apartment um, building burned down in Oviedo. And I remember a time in my first church where we had this family's houses and it was a cabin actually. It just burned to the ground. I watched it going on. I saw the heartbreak on that family's face as that house just went down into ashes. And I found out then that, that a, um, a family that loses their home needs something immediately. You say, well, let's plan, let's do this, let's do that. A month later, meals come in, a month later, close. They don't need it then. They need it right away. And you're, because of your giving, we were able to give a gift card, a Visa card to every single one of those families that lost their home. And then we, we advertised it and, and, the, and the city helped us do this. We advertised it, and people bring clothes all during the week. And on Saturday, they were able to come and get new clothes. Some of, it brand, some of the tags were on there. But you gave that. 50% of that came from you and 50% of it from the community. We were able to do that. And we, we collected more clothes and more toiletries. And yes, toilet paper, which is a sign of things to come. Good news. We're, we're coming back. Toilet paper everywhere. And more than, than we, they could possibly, in fact, almost as much as we have during the come and get it times when we open up to the entire community. And God, God led us to do that because of ministry in tough times. Notice it says in verse eight, a humble mind. It really just comes down to that. And let me just say this and getting back to the whole, the whole race thing, all right? A humble mind before others to listen to them. And let me say this. And I quote, I quote someone else when I say this, but race is a part, different races are part of God's plan to show the manifested glory of God, the multifaceted glory and love of God. It's God's will. God is not a cookie cutter kind of God. Everything's different. But I want you to, to lock into something as we humble ourselves before God. And that is this. In verse 9, it says, but you are a chosen race. Listen, at this point, and I've been trying to preach this even before all this came up. I am no longer, first and foremost, in the white race. I'm not even the human race. I'm in God's race. Once you receive Jesus Christ into your heart, that becomes a new priority in your life, a new brotherhood in your life. A new, as it were, Philadelphia, a new phileo, a new friendship in your life. You're part of the body of Christ. And the Bible says here that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And that must come first and foremost in our life. He says, you humble yourself before God. And it says, then it says, forgive one another. 
It says here in verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those to those you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. He says, look, you, you need not evil for evil. Something evil's done, you don't come back and do something evil. As, as a Christian church, we lead the way by doing something gracious. Now, the Bible says Jesus came with truth and grace. And so we come with the truth and we come with accountability. But we come at the same heart same way with a gracious heart. And it says, control the tongue. Here's what James says. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set on among members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell. It's talking here about gossip, but it's also talking about fiery language. It's talking about stirring up the pot. Now, we may not do that all the time verbally, but we we have been guilty sometimes of doing it on social media. And it's the same thing. It's becoming part of the problem instead of part, stirring the pot, become part of the problem, getting our emotions out there, thinking with our emotions, thinking about the world's thoughts. And sometimes we don't even have the facts when we do it. We don't. I've been finding out all kinds of things I didn't know this week as I've been really researching this thing because I want to be able to give an account before God on, on, on the possible way that I can be involved in this. I want to know the facts. We don't even know the facts. And yet we, we go and we stir the pot instead of being part of the solution. He says, watch the tongue. And he says this by saying in verse 11, let him turn away from evil and seek peace and pursue it. You can't seek the peace if you're always stirring the pot. You can't seek the peace when you're siding with the world's way of thinking when we know that that is contrary to the Bible and to the Word of God. My wife posted something on Facebook this past week, just two verses out of James about how we ought to live, similar to what I'm saying here. That's it. I'm sure some people took offense to that because when you take a stand for God, people are going to take offense. People are going to say, oh, you're, you're just going down the middle of the road. I'm not, I'm not going down the middle of the road with anything. I've always been willing to take a stand on things. I've taken a stand on for abortion, for example, in, in times past. I've taken stands on things, but I want to take a stand with not only the truth, but I want to take a stand with wisdom, and I want to take a stand based upon the word of God and not the emotions of the world. Amen. Control the tongue. And he says this. He says there's a, there's a way that we need to do it. There's a, there's a way that uh, we have a message and the unity of the whole body is this. We have a message. That's the Bible. We have a model, Jesus Christ. And we have a mission to reach and teach people for Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. Bible said, Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that if we're always emotionally involved in stirring the pot? There are people on both sides of the aisle and in the middle and everywhere else that need to be led to Jesus Christ so they can not only go to heaven but speak with the wisdom of God and be led by the word of God and be led by the Holy Spirit of God. So that's our, that's our mission. <clears throat> that's our unity. That's what we gather around. Now, how do we do it? Real quickly, we need to be born again. 
The Bible says in verses 13 and 14, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. You have Jesus as your Lord. How do you do that? Well, you be born again. The Bible says all, we've gone over this over and over again about how we need to be born of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God comes into our heart the very moment that we repent of sins and invite Jesus into our heart. We're ignited. Our old dead spirit is reignited, and we are born from above. We're born of God, born, as it were, the second time, and Jesus lives in our heart. But after that, it begins a journey. It's a beginning. It begins a journey, and the journey is, and the, and the struggle is, is to have Jesus Christ as Lord of your life every day and every moment. And it's a moment-by-moment moment struggle. And it's so important because all of us have a God. All of us have something on the throne. And it may be that it's the people around us. And we, we need to please them in some way. We need to make sure that we're part of the group in some way. And even that could be true in a church. It could be that money is on, on, it could be power, as we mentioned before. Fame, something is on the throne of our life, and whatever's on the throne is going to come back to bite you and bite all of those around you, except unless it is the master himself, Jesus Christ. He'll never forsake you. He'll never come back to haunt you in the end. He'll never betray you. We make an idol. We love the idol. We trust the idol, and then we end up obeying the idol. And whatever it has in our life, we obey it even, among, even above the word of God. Now, we have convictions in life and we have preferences in life. And you've heard me maybe speak about this before. What is a conviction? A conviction is something you will never compromise. Never. A preference is something it's important to you. But you recognize the fact it's just you. It's important to you. It's emotional to you. It's important to a few. And so the conviction is something you don't give up. So where, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, where do you get the conviction? You get the conviction from here. Where's the chapter and verse on that? You say, well, this is the way, way I think. Where, where's the Bible, what does the Bible say on that? Well, the Bible, I believe that man is just basically good, and if you take away all the, the military and the police and everything else, we're just all, all out good. Well, not only does history not bear that out, but the Bible says the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus said, the Bible said about Jesus, he knew in their heart who they were. He knew the wickedness of mankind's heart left unchecked. And the only way to check it is either through, through military or police or through the word of God. It's true that a Christian does not need, if everybody was a believer and everybody acted by the word of God, then yeah, we wouldn't need the accountability. That, that kind of check in our life. But otherwise, we're going to need it. And so we find here that we get from the word of God. Dear friends, we're in warfare. And Tony Jun Coach Tony Dungy said it best. We talked about we need to, as Christians, come together and be the answer to it and the solution and not the problem. And we need to recognize that our enemy is not people. It's spiritual warfare going on. It's the devil himself. So why should we do it? Why? Why should I surrender my life to Jesus Christ? Why should I live the way that he's talking about living? 
Well, he gives us the answer in verse 15. He says, honor Christ as Lord in your heart, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness, do it with respect. He's saying, share your faith, but do it in gentleness, do it in respect for the person and listen to them. Listen, when, I'm sh- when we're sharing Christ, instead of just trying to get our words out there, why don't you listen to where that, that person is coming from, what, what their background, what they're feeling. And then you can share the gospel with them where they are. But that's what it's saying, give a defense. Now this word, um, defense, comes from the word apology, where we get our word apologetics or defense of the faith. And it's really talking about this, is that we need to be an advertisement for the gospel. That's what it's saying. It says, we'll be prepared to give it a defense. Why? Because of the way we're living. Because we're in unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Why? What, what, what is the, the purpose to all this? So we are the advertisement for the gospel. And just like the old window dressing in the department store, you look and some of you ladies look at a dress and you think, or outfit, and you think, wow, I wonder what else they have in the store. What is in the window dressing uh, causes you to want to go in and find out What's behind all this? What is there that maybe that I would want? Why, 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 why? And so you look at a Christian's life. You look at their life and you see all this going on in their life and how they're responding to adversity in their life. And someone comes up to you and and begins to talk to you because they want to know what is the difference in your life versus their life. That's what it's talking about. That our life should shine in such a way that lost people who are lost to God, eternity on the line, they're lost to God no matter what nationality, no matter what faith, no matter what race, no matter what nationality and country. We have, in every single one of those phases, we have people who are lost, and they're a loss to God. Then he says in verse 16, having a good conscience, this is the second reason, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, good behavior in Christ may put them to shame, for it is better to you to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He says, look, you know, sometimes you suffer for doing good. Now, he says in verse 17, it's rare. It's not all the time. These people are going through that rarity. It's not all the time. But when you do, know you're suffering for the right reason. And suffering because you're taking a stand for Jesus Christ, knowing that the rest of the people on Facebook maybe are saying something about you and coming back on you because you quote a Bible verse or you try to be the voice of reason or try to listen to someone else and you're just not emotional enough. It may be one of those 200 million Christians right now across the world that are being persecuted and dying for their faith and being martyred for their faith. There's been more martyrs for our faith, more persecutions that ended in death in the last 50 years than in the previous 300 years for the, for the cause of Christ. People dying all over the world. And so it does happen. He says, when it does happen, have a good conscience knowing that whatever they accuse you of, it's just not true. That all behind it, everything behind it is spiritual warfare and they're attacking you because of what you believe, because of your faith. Dear friends, during this time, we can shine forth in a bad time. The darker this world gets, the darker the sky gets, the better you can see the stars. I remember when I was a student at Cold Falls College, we had a flood. I've told you that story a time or two, and we did have a flood, 
and it killed 39 people on campus. Many of them were my friends. The water came just a few feet from my window. And as we made our way up to the hospital, not because we were injured, but because it was on high ground, it was on campus, it was on high ground, we went up there, we, we called our parents, told them we were going to be all right. Many of them didn't even know what had happened. It was like early, very early in the morning. And we didn't know that reporters were, were out there waiting on us. And over and over and over again, as we surveyed the, the property and what had happened and the damage, they were right there with microphones and notepads. And I don't know what they were putting down on that notepad. I'm convinced now reporters never write a note, really, <laughs> because they sure didn't write down anything I said. But anyway, they were writing down notes. And uh, we had a chance to share Christ with them. And when the funeral was held in Tacoa as a joint funeral for every victim, reporters showed up and an invitation to receive Christ was given and reporters were putting down their notepads and their cameras and tears coming forward, giving their life and heart to Jesus Christ. Sometimes, sometimes our lowest times of suffering can be our greatest times of witness. Now, what about us? What about you? How are we going to be in all this? Where are we going to end up in all this? Where, where are, you, are you going to be part of the answer, part of the solution, or part of the problem? The Bible says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and hear their prayer and heal their land. And I invite you to become part of the solution today. And the first way you do that, you've got to have Lord, Jesus as Lord of your life, to have his wisdom, to have his knowledge, to have his spirit guiding you in this life. And so I invite you today to make Christ Lord. Let's pray. And if you've never made Jesus Christ Savior and Lord of your life, whether you're here live or you're watching by video, I want to encourage you today to pray this prayer with me and inviting Christ into your heart as I pray out loud. God, thank you so much for loving us and loving me. God, you paid for my sins, and there are many, as you died on the cross for me. And Lord, I accept your payment for my sin. I ask you to come into my life. Cleanse me of my sin. I turn from it. I repent of it. And I pray that you would give me the wisdom. You would give me the courage. You would give me the guidance spiritually that I need as I make you Lord and Savior of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.